Blessed Miguel Pro once said, If life be harder, love make it all so stronger. And only this love, grounded in suffering, can carry the cross of my Lord, Jesus Christ. Welcome to the 79th episode of St. Dimpna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because the love we experience from a supportive and compassionate community is the love of God, and it has the power to carry us through our darkest moments. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, I received a question from Anonymous asking if there's a patron saint for people who have suicidal ideation, and I thought this might be a helpful topic that a lot of you would be interested in, so let's take a look at a couple of potentials. If you know me, you know that I'm going to have to start with Servant of God, Dorothy Day here. Following a disastrous liaison with Lionel Moyes, Dorothy attempted suicide in her apartment. If it wasn't for a neighbor known as Weavy Willie, Dorothy may never have been able to live the life we all know so well. He smelled gas coming from her apartment, entered, and pulled Dorothy out to safety. She had been through so much in her life and is one of those in heaven who intensely understands what it's like to feel hopeless and like there's nothing to live for. Edith Stein, the great St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, known for her heroism during World War II, is the next saint that comes to mind. She once said, quote, I gradually worked myself into real despair. I could no longer cross the street without wishing that a car would run me over and I would not come out alive. Blessed Bartolo Longo is the final name that makes it onto this powerful list. He drifted away from the faith to the point of being ordained a priest of Satan. And while he was eventually uh, able to return to the faith, he looked back on himself and felt unworthy of mercy. And he once wrote, quote, As I pondered over my condition, I experienced a deep sense of despair and almost committed suicide, end quote. It really is a blessing to learn about these incredible holy heroes who experience the same thoughts of suicide, hopelessness, and despair that we walk through at times in our lives or maybe on a daily basis. It helps me to not feel so alone, and we're truly not alone. Women and men who have experienced deep and dark pain just like this are right this very moment standing before the throne of God. He made them saints. They lived lives that were just powerful in the Lord. And they're ready to pray for us. Dorothy Day, Edith Stein, and Bartolo Longo, pray for us. On to the next topic, some difficult to hear news as we learn more about the long-term impacts of COVID. A study has found that one in three COVID survivors suffer neurological or mental disorders. CNBC has more. One in three survivors uh, of COVID has suffered a neurological or psychiatric disorder within six months of infection with the virus. An ob observational study of more than 230,000 patient health records has estimated. This group was compared with 105,579 patients diagnosed with influenza and 236,038 patients diagnosed with respiratory tract infection, including influenza. Overall, the estimated incidence of being diagnosed with a neurological or mental health disorder following a COVID infection was 34%. The study led by researchers at the University of Oxford found when looking at 14 neurological and mental health disorders. For 13% of these people, it was their first recorded neurological 
neurological or psychiatric diagnosis. And the most common diagnoses after having the coronavirus were anxiety disorders, 17%, mood disorders, 14%, substance misuse disorders, 7%, and insomnia, 5%. It's really difficult to truly grasp the full impact that COVID has had on our world and our lives. And this news makes it even more clear. Beyond just the illness itself, we now see that there's a chance of long-lasting difficulties for those who have made it through COVID, and really that's just heartbreaking. However, with this knowledge, we can focus on early detection and reaching out for help right away when these kinds of mental health symptoms pop up, both for those who have suffered COVID and those who have never had it. Perhaps we can take away a positive thing from this data, and that can be a renewed effort to get appropriate care for mental health symptoms as soon as possible. Let's pray together right now for everyone who has survived COVID only to experience mental health symptoms they've never experienced before, that they might find help, hope, and healing. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Maria de San Jose. In 1875, the eldest of four children in Venezuela, she received her confirmation at the age of two and felt called to religious life from a very young age. She shared this with her spiritual director who encouraged her to make a personal vow to God when she was 17, which she did. Around 1893, at the age of 22 and still not able to join religious life, she made another powerful personal resolution, quote, I want to be a saint, but a real saint, my Jesus you and only you are the goal of all my striving. She started working in a hospital helping take care of smallpox patients that, some, that same year, and after an earthquake in 1900, she moved into the streets helping take care of all those who had lost their homes in the disaster. In 1901, she finally received permission from the archbishop to found her own religious order with three companions dedicated to the care of the ill, and in 1902, she made her solemn profession of her vows at long last. The congregation received papal approval by Pope Pius XII in 1952, 50 years after she took her vows. She died in 1967, and in 1994, her remains were found to be incorrupt. Another absolutely amazing woman who found God's road for her life after a whole lot of struggling and difficulty, and another absolutely incredible woman to reach out to for prayers when we're feeling that finding God's path is difficult in our own lives. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Loving and gracious God, be with our sisters and brothers in Venezuela who are experiencing violence and instability, inflation and hunger. Help all neighbors reach out to those in need. If it be your will, help us to be your vessels, vessels of your hope, vessels of your mercy, vessels of your love and all your blessings, that all Venezuela may flourish anew. Holy Mary, Our Lady of Coromoto, pray for us. Amen.
And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us started. I have often wondered if I was sexually abused but don't have a memory of it. I have sisters that have also had the same feeling. How would one go about knowing for sure? I just feel the whole area of sexuality has always been a stumbling block. I don't know how to move past this. It keeps coming up after being subdued for a while. I wonder if my drinking from age 13 and wild college days before I got sober are also possibly a result of the abuse. I can't seem to move on from this. Any suggestions or thoughts? Also, some things I have mentioned to my therapist, uh, and it's kind of been downplayed or chalked up to being young and crazy. So do I find a different therapist? Let's all take a moment to pray together for Anonymous that the Blessed Virgin Mary may intercede on Anonymous's behalf, asking Christ to bring peace, comfort, consolation, and understanding. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Let's start with the last part of your question first. It can be really frustrating to share something with a therapist only to have them downplay things because it takes so much emotional effort to bring something up, to make a connection, even to ask for help. So when they don't recognize the emotional costs going on for us in the therapeutic relationship, we can feel pretty let down. You can definitely look into finding a different therapist, but... Uh, if you think that it's a good relationship outside of this issue, it may be worth exploring the issue in therapy. I know it might sound weird, but therapy is a great place to work on issues that come up in therapy. In fact, not only might it help the therapeutic relationship get back on track, but it also might be a great modeling experience for other relationships in our lives where we could have similar conversations. This is totally up to you, though, because being willing to bring this up to a therapist, something like, you know, you kind of downplayed this thing that I think is really important and worth exploring. Can we talk about it? That's not easy. And it, it might be hard enough to, to lead us to look into another option, but it can be worth it. On to the bigger question here. This is really difficult. Childhood trauma can have long lasting impacts on us as we move through life. And one of those impacts can be difficulties with memory, concentration, etc., which is where it can get complicated. We'll start with mentalhealthcenter.org for some thoughts on this. Childhood trauma may take many forms, physical or sexual abuse, witnessing a traumatic event, having a severe illness requiring surgery or hospitalization, witnessing domestic violence, experiencing intense bullying, even extreme situations like refugee trauma and experiencing a large-scale natural disaster. Childhood trauma chips away at a child's stability and sense of self, undermining self-worth, and often staying with the child into adulthood. This trauma can also impact a person into adulthood as they experience feelings of shame and guilt, feeling disconnected and unable to relate to others, trouble controlling emotions, heightened anxiety and depression and anger. In the case of a child experiencing caretaker or parent abuse, a number of adult attachment disorders can occur, and these can include dismissive avoidant attachment. This form of attachment results when the caregiver ignores or rejects a child's need. When that child becomes an adult, they may choose to be ultra-independent in order to protect themselves from being rejected again. 
The next one is fearful avoidant attachment. When a child experiences and is exposed to abuse and neglect, it is natural for some to fear intimacy and close relationships. And now in adulthood, those with fearful avoidant attachment are often distrustful and have a difficult time sharing emotions and may seem disconnected from their partner. The next is anxious preoccupied attachment. This adult may seem clingy or needy and will often require repeated validation in relationships. They will never entirely feel secure stemming from a childhood with parents who were not consistent in the emotional security they provide. Loving the child and then rejecting them repeatedly causes the child to continually question their place and require ongoing validation. According to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, strong connections exist between childhood trauma and high-risk behavior, such as smoking, having unprotected sex, and experiencing chronic illness, such as heart disease and cancer. Individuals who have experienced abuse are likely to experience stress and anxiety later in life. This long-term stress and anxiety can cause physical symptoms as well as emotional issues throughout life. So back to me, of course, experiencing these symptoms do not in and of themselves mean definitively that you've experienced abuse, but hopefully through a good and healthy therapeutic relationship, you can work on this in therapy, either with your current therapist or a new one, if that's the direction that you want to go in, and can find peace, answers, and hope moving forward. A different anonymous is up next. Long story short, I've been really struggling with my job on and off for a year, but really badly in the past few months. I've had anxiety and depression most of my life. Therapy has helped a lot, but lately I'm finding it really difficult uh, and it affects my work life. And due in part to frustrations of our company trying to navigate the pandemic, big changes in my department, and not getting to do the parts of my job that I enjoy without feeling rushed, I've just felt very anxious, constantly behind, and discouraged at my lack of progress. I'm less convinced that I will ever get back to enjoying the work like I did before. Two winters ago, I had a rough patch and my manager seemed to be very understanding that part of it was due to struggles with my depression, which gets worse during the winter. We even bonded over our shared experience with therapy and I felt supported. But now that it was the second year in a row where my performance dipped during the winter, I felt that the goodwill was diminished and my manager had seemed more frustrated and unsure how to help. She also manages more people now, so I have a less one-on-one -on -one interaction, which I struggle with. I guess I have two questions. First, I've been thinking it might be time to move on and see if my mental health improves at a new job, but every time I try and look for work, I have had or have come close to having a panic attack, which made me feel even more helpless. Do you have any tips on how to make that less emotionally taxing and feel more doable? My second question is, do you have advice on how to better communicate when I'm struggling and how to make plans to get through rough patches to either my manager now or future employers? I think that part of why I struggle with this is just the fear that I won't find anyone who I'm able to work with on this that uh, will understand my mental health um, or that I'll be able to handle the kind of work that I do. Let's start by praying for Anonymous, for good mental health, good support, and clarity for how best to move forward. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. 
First off, I want to commend you on how you reached out for help when you needed it, how you were open to sharing your experience in an effort to get more support at work, and how you're thinking about how to best take care of yourself right now. It's such a beautiful witness, and I know it might feel like a difficult battle a lot of the time, but I want to take a moment to pat you on the back too, to recognize all the hard work you've put into this so far. When we're looking at other opportunities for work, so many anxiety-provoking thoughts can pop into our minds, so many fears, so many questions about if this is the right decision, so many things that make our brains grind to a halt with panic. One important thing to remember is that none of that stuff has happened yet. None of those bad things are going to happen simply by us just looking for other job opportunities. When we make a decision to start looking for work elsewhere, it can be so easy for our minds to leap five steps ahead and we can actually start to experience the emotions associated with those possibilities. But we have to intentionally slow things down and realize what is happening in the present moment. Be mindful of what's going on in the present moment and stay in it. Try using your senses to ground you in the moment. What do you hear in that moment? What do you smell? How does a chair feel on your body? All of this can help us stay grounded. And here's another fun idea. Try looking for some jobs that you absolutely wouldn't get, wouldn't go for, wouldn't want, etc. Just go through the motions of looking for jobs. Maybe start typing in an application. You don't have to actually submit it, but going through the motion in a scenario that doesn't mean anything for your actual life, it can train your brain to be calm when you start looking for something more on track with what you would actually do. Now, as to how you can get better at going about communicating with your, me your mental health situation and needs at work, I would first remind everyone that you don't have to share your mental health experience with those at work. It may be beneficial, but you definitely don't have to feel compelled to unless you know you can trust the person and that it's likely to help. We'll turn to Psycom for thoughts on how to approach this situation when it comes up. Number one, consult others if you can. It might be best to approach HR if you're not confident enough to have the discussion with your boss or are worried about the way he or she will react. Or, depending on your situation, you may benefit from speaking to a colleague. Having a work friend or buddy can be helpful, a person you can regularly check in with that understands your workload and what the work environment is like. Mention to your work buddy that you're thinking of talking to your boss. Having someone to support you through this process can make it seem a lot less daunting. Number two, think about what you need. Think about why you're disclosing this information in the first place. What support do you need? Hold off on telling your boss until you're clear about what you're hoping to gain by sharing this information. Maybe you need a little flexibility with deadlines, some time off, or to cut your hours down slightly. Or you might need to consider whether flexible hours or remote working might be a better long-term solution. It's also okay if you're not sure about what to do or what help you need. No one is expecting you to be an expert, especially if this is the first time you've experienced a mental health problem. Try to think of small changes that can be easily made. Number three, find the right time and place. We can't know for certain what our mental health will be like in the future, but if you can, try to predict a suitable daytime, day or time to bring it up the topic to your boss. Approaching your boss on a day when things are calm in the office is best. Try to meet in a place where you'll be able to talk in a calm and collected way. If there isn't a quiet space within your workplace, suggest going somewhere else or even for a walk. Walking can take the corporate feeling out of the meeting and being outside might bring a new perspective on how you're feeling. Number four, when the time's right, go for it. The relationship you have with your boss will determine the best way for you both to have this discussion. It might be easier for you to request a one-on-one -on -one by email as this can allow you to book some private time away from your colleagues. Number five, take care of yourself. 
By having a conversation with your boss and keeping him or her in the loop about your mental health, you can start to make the changes that will benefit you. If you're concerned about how your boss might respond to your disclosure, consider asking a friend or your therapist to role play the conversation you anticipate having with him or her. And that way, you'll feel much more prepared and relaxed when the time comes. We'll be praying for you. A third anonymous brings us home. Do you have any resources or tips for someone who is struggling with scrupulosity or religious OCD? Let's start by praying for anonymous and everyone living with religious OCD for peace and consolation and for the guidance to know how best to move forward. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. We always make sure to start off with definitions around here, so let's take some time to sort out what religious OCD or scrupulosity actually is, and we'll go with the International OCD Foundation. Scrupulosity is a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, involving religious or moral obsessions. Scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. Common obsessions seen in scrupulosity include excessive concerns about blasphemy, having committed a sin, behaving morally, purity, going to hell, death, a loss of impulse control. Besides excessive worry about religious and moral issues, scrupulosity sufferers engage in mental or behavioral compulsions. Behavioral compulsions could include excessive trips to confession, repeatedly seeking reassurance from religious leaders and loved ones, repeatedly cleansing and purifying rituals, acts of self-sacrifice, avoiding situations, for example, religious services, in which they believe a religious or moral error would be especially likely or cause something bad to happen. Mental compulsions could include excessive praying, sometimes with an emphasis on the prayer needing to be perfect, repeatedly imagining sacred images or phrases, repeating passages from sacred scripture in one's head, making pacts with God. Unlike normal religious practice, scrupulous behavior usually exceeds or disregards religious law and may focus excessively on one trivial area of religious practice while other more important areas may be completely ignored. The behavior of scrupulous individuals is typically inconsistent with that of the rest of the faith community. So, OCD and scrupulosity is often misunderstood and even made light of, uh, and that's really frustrating because so many of us are walking through a life marked by symptoms of OCD, and it's so much more challenging and difficult than it's made out to be in popular movies, TV shows, or books. And when it comes to religious OCD, to intrusive thoughts around matters of eternity, sin, God, etc., it can be all the more debilitating. Thanks be to God, there is treatment. Back to the International OCD Foundation, scrupulosity responds to the same treatment as those used with other forms of OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy, Featuring a procedure called exposure and response prevention is the primary psychological treatment for scrupulosity. A certain kind of medicine called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, are the primary drug treatment for OCD, and treatment for scrupulosity may also include consultation from leaders of the patient's faith tradition. 
So if you reach out for therapy, which would be a great idea if you're living with these symptoms, you should work to find a therapist who specializes in exposure and response prevention, as noted. And let's take a look at one example to give us an idea of what that might look like. We'll go with this one from nocd.com. Eric is attending a religious service. A dialogue in the religious text is being read aloud, and Eric finds it funny. Then he remembers that he's in a place of worship and immediately feels guilty. He thinks to himself, Scripture is not to be laughed at. If I don't atone for this, I will be punished. This means I'm an evil person. What if I go to hell? Eric begins to frequently confess to religious leaders that he has committed a blasphemous act, and he prays for forgiveness a dozen times per day. In order to avoid feeling guilty, he also starts to avoid reading religious texts and stops attending religious services. For people with scrupulos scrupulosity, religious OCD, exposure and response prevention, ERP therapy, might include exposure to a trigger that is connected to the patient's urge to seek reassurance. So for Eric, we might consider one of his compulsions was to repeatedly excessively go to confession to seek reassurance from his priest that he hadn't blasphemed and was not going to go to hell. An ERP exercise might involve Eric thinking about a time he had an inappropriate reaction to scripture. His therapist would then help him avoid his compulsion, uh, his compulsive urge to seek out reassurance through confession. And eventually, his obsession and compulsive behaviors would improve as he learns to stop relying on compulsions to relieve his anxiety in the short term. This kind of treatment isn't easy. After all, it, it asks us to sit with anxiety, bring it on and sit with it without seeking the reassurance that we're so used to going for. But once you learn the tools, you can start to incorporate ER practices into your own self-care and it's really, really effective. We'll be praying for you. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.